You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Open up your Bible, if you have one, to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to attempt to, to work through this entire chapter. Uh, it's a wonderful text. Uh, and uh, look forward to what the Lord may have to say to us through it. Uh, but as you find that, I just wanted to highlight, if you are a guest, whether you're a new college student or you uh, live here locally and this is your first time with us, you are catching us on a Sunday where we are at the very end of a story that we've been going through in the Bible this summer in this book that we call Nehemiah. Uh, we started back in June, and we've been going for a few months now and are now to the end of it. And so uh, you get to, I'll try to help you catch up to speed with what's been going on in the stories uh, so you're not lost. But just wanted you to know that's where we're at today. We typically do that as a church most Sundays. We just spend going through books of the Bible, and we're up to the end of one today. We're going to take a couple-week break and do some sermons on work and rest the next two Sundays. Then we're going to jump back into the Gospel of John, which we left, out, uh, left off about halfway through at the end of last school year. A few weeks from now, we'll pick back up uh, in that book, that wonderful book of the Bible. But since we are at the end of the story of Nehemiah this morning, I was thinking about how our stories that we tell in our culture typically end this week, especially kids' stories. And if you have kids or grandkids or you're a teacher, maybe you just remember uh, when you were a child hearing story after story after story. There's a certain rhythm in most stories that we tell kids or that we show in movies uh, or that we maybe even go see at the theater uh, that we read in books, uh, the phrase gets lodged into our memory uh, very significantly. And, and after all the details of the story have been worked out, all the problems and, and kinks have been worked out, obstacles overcome, there's this phrase that we heard our mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or many others tell us over and over and over, and it's this, and you could probably even say it with me, that they all lived what? happily ever after. That's the phrase that gets lodged in our minds and hearts, and and we hear it so much, it starts to, whether we realize it or not, I think become an expectation in our own life, uh, that that as we grow up, we may face different obstacles and challenges, but ultimately, it's all going to get resolved, and I'm going to find the right person, and God's going to fix stuff, and we're just going to live happily ever after. But as we grow up, some of us realize this sooner rather than later, some as kids ourselves, but sometimes as teenagers, as young adults, as older adults, we we see in our own life that that expectation of happily ever after never really materializes. And we may have high notes, we may have high points of our experience where stuff does get resolved and peace comes and, and situations and problems are overcome, but then our highs are followed by lows, aren't they? Our victories are followed by defeats. Our successes and accomplishments that we have, whether individually or collectively, are followed by failures, sometimes significant failures. And that happily ever after becomes just this figment of our imagination that might be in fairy tale world or in fiction land, but does not come true in my life or in our life together. And so today we come to the end of this story of Nehemiah. And if you have not been with us, I wanted to, to quickly point out uh, that if, if you would read through the first 12 chapters of this book, it feels like one of those stories that's bending towards a happily ever after. Uh, like it started with these significant problems, like the city of Jerusalem where almost all of this takes place, had been in shambles. The people there had been in great trouble and shame, Nehemiah tells us their wall had been torn down. 
But Nehemiah, who lived in a land far, far away, uh, in the city of Susa, uh, hears about it, and after much prayer, he's sent to the city of Jerusalem, and almost miraculously, definitely supernaturally, the God works through him and through the people there, and the people that had been so discouraged and defeated and feeling vulnerable from their enemies, God gives them great courage. And, and to their own self-sacrifice and putting in hard work as a community, in less than two months, God helps them to overcome the taunts of their enemies, to rebuild this wall, to even overcome some of the mistreatment that was going on amongst them inside the people of God. There's this wonderful stuff that's happening. And, and we saw the last few chapters that they had started to read the Bible together again, which they hadn't done in a long time. And they were hearing how God wanted them to live, things that they had long since stopped doing. And their response was to start doing it, to, st- to confess it, repent it, s- repent of it, start doing and obeying what God had said to do. And it had gotten to a point even in chapter 12 where we saw that, that things had gotten so strong and secure and well that they're having a parade. They're having a party almost of sorts to celebrate the good that God's done, the, the miraculous way he's restored Jerusalem. It seemingly changed their hearts. And it seems like it's moving towards this happily ever after, that Nehemiah, uh, for the rest of his days, Jerusalem uh, is in, in a state of peace, and they all lived happily ever after. But you get a few verses deep into chapter 13, and you see that Nehemiah is not embarrassed as an old man as he's writing this story to write about how stuff actually started to unravel. And, and the good that had been established, the good that had been done, starts to be undone. The pieces that have been put together start to fall apart again. And it's a not-so-happily-ever-after. And I appreciate the Bible's honesty and the writer's honesty to give a dose of reality about what happens in the real world and in our lives. And we're going to read about much of this this morning, how, how things fell apart, how this seemingly happily-ever-after did not materialize in the days of Nehemiah. So I'm going to start with you uh, in the first three verses of Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, we're going to see these first three verses, it's still things are going pretty well. This is kind of the culmination. The first 12 chapters have only covered a span of several months worth of time. And these first three verses, even of the last chapter, are still kind of about that era, those first several months. And then the rest of it, verses 4 and following, are going to be 12, maybe 15, maybe 20 years. We don't know exactly, but later on. Uh, well, that's where we'll start to see stuff unravel. But these first three verses, stuff is still going well. It's still seeming like, like it's going to bend toward this happily ever after. So we'll read that, and then we'll see how they fall from these heights. But this is how Nehemiah starts this last section. He says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. As you hear that, you might not think that that is a good thing, that that's not things going well still because they're they're excluding people. But what's happening, at least briefly there, and then we'll move on to the main section of this story, is that in that early stage, uh, back in those early times where things were going well in Jerusalem, they were reading the Word of God over and over and again. And they came to this part and piecing together things. It seems like they're reading what we call Deuteronomy chapter 23. Uh, where, where God is recount, Moses is recounting for them their historical events and what happened with this man named Balaam, 
this prophet or false prophet and how these Ammonites and Moabites had used him to try to, to kind of infiltrate the people of God and even bring a curse upon them. And God told them in Deuteronomy 23 as a nation to not associate with them, to, to not allow them to fellowship with them as Jews. And they read about that and quite simply, you see it even in verse 3, as they hear the law, hear the word read to them, they obey it. It's that, it's that simple. They hear what God has told them to do, and they do it. It's a very simple thing how we all should be as humans, is that we hear what God tells us, and we obey. We respond in obedience. And that had been the rhythm for those last couple months in that early stage of Nehemiah's investment and involvement there. But we're going to see, starting in verse 4, how he, as an old man now writing this, gives us glimpses into how stuff started to be compromised. The the commitments that they even made together, formal commitments they had made that you can read about back in chapter 10, they had made these formal commitments, things like to take care of the temple and the offerings that were needed to operate it. They had made commitments to keep the Sabbath, to renew that desire and commitment as a people. And they had made a commitment to not marry people of different ethnicities, especially different religions that worshipped other gods. They had made all these formal promises, but Nehemiah is going to record for us one by one how they compromised on all of those. In just a span of 12 years, 12 years plus, which we'll see, they had compromised on all of these. And so we're going to read about these, see how they compromised, what Nehemiah saw as he went away from Jerusalem for a little while and came back, what he sees, how it unraveled. We're going to see how he responds to the action he takes, which is swift, firm action as we'll read this. But then we're going to see how we can, how I think we should see ourselves in this text, the ways we might be tempted to compromise as well. And we'll step back and try to see Nehemiah from a big picture perspective before we close the book together. But the first thing that Nehemiah is going to see and we're going to read about is how they compromised when it came to the operation of the temple there in Jerusalem. So we're going to read, I'm going to read verses 4 down through 14. And we're going to see, even as we read, that Nehemiah is going to go away for a while, then he's going to come back, and this is what he starts to see. He records for us this. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who is related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber, where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. And while this is where we kind of see what happened chronologically. He says, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. Those were the, the Levites were the folks that were in charge of taking care of the temple, and the people were supposed to give tithes to them to help them do that. But he says that he found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken 
And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So there's a lot going on here. But the first thing that Nehemiah sees uh, as he returns is going to have to do with the temple and the commitments they had made to take care of it, to have it operate the way God said to. They, they've abandoned that. They've compromised on it. But what you see down in, just to set the scene for us down in verse 6 is that Nehemiah says that when it came to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, that's the king who had originally sent him and allowed him to come to Jerusalem in the first place. He says that in the 32nd year of that king's reign, he went back to him. And we can kind of piece together timelines, because if you read the beginning of Nehemiah, he says the time he initially came, like that he was sent from that land far, far away, uh, it was in the 20th year of the king of Artaxerxes. And so that's when he started, and God did a lot of the work we've read about the first 12 chapters in just a few months back in that 20th year. And then now when it comes up to the 32nd year, so 12-year span of time, Nehemiah has been in Jerusalem, presumably ruling and helping them be organized and follow the commitments that they've made. But in that 12th year now, the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, he goes back to the king, and he stays there, he says, for some time. We don't know how long that is, but probably pretty long since stuff unravels significantly. But then he comes back. He asks if he can come back to Jerusalem to see how things are going. And that is when he sees what is unfolding here. And the first thing that he takes note of is the temple. And, and he sees that there's this man named Tobiah in verses uh, 4 and 5 who is living in the temple who they've taken a storehouse that was supposed to be where the offerings were stored, where the grain and the oil and all these things that were needed for the temple, they were supposed to be stored in these places inside the temple. And because, seemingly, because God's people weren't giving their offerings, they weren't donating these things as they were supposed to, like we see down in verses 10 and following, they hadn't been doing that and taking care of the temple collectively. There's this, these empty rooms inside of the temple. And the high priest, Eliashib, is related to this man named Tobiah, and he invites him to come and live in the temple. And Nehemiah sees and realizes that the people aren't giving their offerings, they're not giving their tithes of grain and, and first fruits to the temple, and he gets angry. He, he, he says he is very angry down in verse 8 when he starts to see these things and see that man the commitments we made to take care of the temple we've just abandoned them and it, he gets so angry for a few reasons one he gets angry because there's a human being living in the temple the temple was a special place that god had told them to construct where god himself was supposed to live where God himself, back in Solomon's day, had literally, physically come down to take up residence, in a sense, in that temple. And to be the presence of him amongst his people there in Jerusalem. That was the house of God. That's what they called it, the house of the Lord. And now a human being is invited to come and make it like an apartment to stay in. And on top of that, it is Tobiah. 
Like if you've read, it would be bad if it was any human being, but this man, if you read the story of Nehemiah, this was one of their enemies. Like this was one of the people who was organizing hostility against them and trying to provoke them and intimidate them, and that Nehemiah had sought to to press back and, and shut his mouth and make him leave them alone. And God had done that successfully, and now 12, maybe 15, 20 years later, that man was invited to come live in the house God was supposed to live in. And Nehemiah can hardly stand it. He, he goes and you see in verse uh, 8 and 9, you see that he is so angry when he sees this and hears of this. He walks into the temple, which he probably was not even supposed to do, uh, and he goes in and he takes uh, Tobiah's stuff and chucks it out of the temple. He's probably an old man at this point in time. He goes in and throws it out. Like when a parent's sick of their kid who's a deadbeat living in the house and they just are acting a fool and they take their stuff and throw it out. Like that's what he does because he can't stand it. Like he cannot stand it that they would invite the enemy of God to come live where God's supposed to live. And he says, what are you doing? Like he, he, he has these rooms cleansed in the temple And then when he finds out that part of why this guy was allowed to live in there is because God's people collectively weren't keeping it full. Like they weren't donating from themselves what was needed to function with the temple. He he takes action, doesn't he, with regard to that. He confronts their leaders, you see, in verse 11. He says, like, why are we forsaking the house of God? We're supposed to take care of this. Like we're supposed to give of what God's given to us to be able to take care of this temple. And we're not doing it. And he sets people in place to ensure that they do start to do that again. That that their offerings are collected and brought into this temple and there to help uh, the the temple function as it was supposed to function. He installs men there to ensure that it happens. And we may be tempted as we read this in 2018 as followers of Jesus who are part of a new covenant to think that this has absolutely nothing to do with us. We don't need to go to the temple in Jerusalem. It's not even upright right now. We may think that this has nothing to do with us, but as we see these people compromise the commitments they had made to the temple, I think there's much that we can learn. And I'll mention a few things for us. As New Testament believers, do you know who is called the temple of God or the temple of the Holy Spirit specifically? It's us. Like you read 1 Corinthians and Paul says, individual Christians, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. We now are the place as individuals first, like where, where God comes and takes up residence in us. Where the Holy Spirit comes and he lives in you if you're a follower of Jesus. And you know what? There are many times in our lives where we allow the enemy to come into our space, come into our eyeballs, come into our ears, come into our houses, our our places where we live, and we allow the evil ones, we invite him into us. Like we, we place evil by what we watch, what we listen, what we think about. We allow evil to come and take up residence within us as if it's no big deal. 
And just as these men and women were to take seriously the purity of the temple of God, the physical temple of God, we are to take care of our bodies, of our minds and hearts and souls as individuals and to fight to be holy, to to not tolerate sin in our life and just toy around with it like they let Tobiah come and live as an enemy of God in the temple of God. When we know there is sin in us, when we know we've allowed evil to come into our life, we are to get rid of it. Not to toy around with it, not to just kind of soften it or make it smaller. We are to kick it out. We are to expel it from our lives, from our hearts, and we ought to take swift action to ensure that we are not compromising. So we, as individuals, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but also, and you see this in some of the second part of what we read, we collectively are called the temple of God as well in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that, that we together as God's people are his temple where he lives among us and in us. And much like these people in Nehemiah's day, they would keep their resources for themselves. They would keep their money. They would keep their grain. They would keep their offerings that they were supposed to be giving and to take care of the temple, this place God dwelled. Much like they did that, we can face a similar temptation to just think of our resources as ours as mine to take care of me, uh, to take care of my family. And we don't often have eyes to think we are the temple of God collectively. And God wants me to take from the things that he has given to me and gladly, generously help provide for the needs of this temple, not the building, but of the people of God here and the mission that God's called us to. And so I would encourage us to, as we see them having stepped away from their commitments to give towards the functioning of their physical temple, to make sure that we have eyes to see ways we might be taking our resources, our time, our money, our energies, and just keeping it purely for ourselves and not seeing how we can offer it into the collective temple of God, the Christians that God has gathered here. And so they compromised when it came to the operation of the temple. But we're going to see another commitment in verses 15 to 22, another commitment they had made as God's people, another commitment they had made. Nehemiah is going to see that they compromised on it as well and it's going to be their sabbath observance that they're keeping of the sabbath that they said that they would do they renewed their commitment to do it and it is unraveled once nehemiah returns so follow with me verses 15 through 22 we'll see what nehemiah sees see what he does and then see how we may learn from it he says in those days i saw in judah judah is like the region around jerusalem In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. In Jerusalem itself, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. 
And the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Then a similar prayer as he prayed back in verse 14, Nehemiah writes, Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So Nehemiah remembered he had led these people to make commitments about how they were going to keep the Sabbath day, 12, 15, maybe 20 years earlier. They had renewed these commitments to keep the Sabbath day, that, that seventh day of the week. And when Nehemiah returns now, what he sees, if you, if you follow along, is he sees people on the Sabbath day, both in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, he sees them just treating it like any other day. He sees them treading their wine presses, he sees them bringing in their grain. He sees them loading up their animals with wine and grapes and figs and all these things and bringing them into the city to the marketplace to be able to sell them and to presumably be able to purchase things from people who had what they wanted. And they're doing this on the Sabbath day. There's foreigners doing it in Jerusalem. Uh, you see in verse 16 this group called the Tyrians who are doing this. Uh, and this is a big deal to Nehemiah. This is a big deal to, to, should be, to any leader that was part of God's people then, that they are not keeping the Sabbath. They're just keeping it like it's any other day of the week, that, that, that it's just a routine day. And what Nehemiah knows and why he had tried to get them to make these commitments in the first place is he knows that God embedded from the beginning of time, even in how he created the world, but then definitely in how he gave rules and guidelines to his people, the Israelites, that God had, had set up this rhythm of six days and one day. Six days and one day. Six days to work, to, to engage in the marketplace, to do what's needed, uh, to work and tend to things, and then one day to rest and to worship, to set it aside as different, to not just treat every day as the same. And God had given specific commands to his people, to the Jewish people, of how to live on that day, week by week by week. As the end of their week came, he had given them these guidelines, and they were to show as a nation, as an individual, as a family, that they trusted God. That they weren't just going to keep spinning their wheels every single day as if it all depended on them. Say, I'm going to work hard for six days. And then on the seventh day, I'm going to rest because I'm confident that six days of work following the Lord, it will far surpass what seven days of hard work and my own energy would gain me. And it was to be a sign of trust in him and of his provision for them, his care for them that should have stuck out like a sore thumb in the world as they worked day by day by day by day and never rested. It was supposed to stick out. But they, instead of showing that to the nations, they're becoming like the nations. They're starting to work every single day and to treat every day the same, to not set aside the Sabbath as different. And Nehemiah sees this, and he's angered again, and he takes action. You see in verse 15, as he first sees it, he says that he warned them not to be doing this, not to be selling food. In verse 17, you see, just like he did about the temple, he confronts their leaders. He says, what's this evil thing that you're doing, like that you're allowing and permitting, maybe even encouraging our people to do? Then in verse 18, he reminds them of their past as a nation. He says, like, our fathers acted in this way. Like, 
they are, remember, they are in Jerusalem, the city that had got destroyed because of their sin, in part because of their Sabbath not keeping it. God had sent enemies, and they had destroyed Jerusalem, and they had been sent out away from Jerusalem, and God had had to lead this miraculous restoring of the city through Nehemiah and through them just 12, 15 years before this. And he's pointing out to them, you're going right back to the things that got us into that bad spot in the first place. The things God had told us, the ways he had told us to live, you're forsaking it just like our fathers did, and you're going to bring wrath on us again. Like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? And so he, he takes action in verse 19 and following. He, he literally has the gates shut to the city as the sun goes down, which would have been when their, their Sabbath started. And Orthodox Jews still to this day, that's when their Sabbath starts, is at sundown uh, at, the, at the end of the sixth day. And at that time, he has the gates shut, and he says, we're not opening them until uh, the Sabbath is over. And the first couple of times, people that were used to coming into the city and just selling stuff, hawking it like usual, they're coming to the gates expecting that they'll, oh, they're just late to open them or something like that. And Nehemiah, like either from above, is calling down to them or yelling through the gates, threatening them, saying, you better get out of here or I'm going to lay hands on you. And they left. That They stopped coming to do that. And so he, he takes action. He, in, he sets Levites there in weeks to come to guard these gates to make sure that God's people are observing the Sabbath. And we may be tempted again to read this and think as New Covenant people, New Testament people, followers of Jesus, that this has nothing to do with us, that we're not under that law of the Sabbath that God gave to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. We don't have to follow all these commands rigidly like they did about the Sabbath day. But as new covenant people, the principles are still embedded into our world. We are still human beings that God made with a need to work for six and rest for one. That that is to be a rhythm that we have as human beings that God's embedded in us for our good. That we would work hard for six days, that we would rest for one. That we would set apart a different day, a day of the week where we seek to rest spiritually and hopefully physically as well, where we seek to engage the Lord himself and set it apart as different and not just continue to spin our wheels and do the same things we did Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and every other day of the week, but that we set apart a day as different. What you see in the New Testament after Jesus was raised from the dead and went back into heaven is that those early Christians set this example of making that be the first day of the week. Of that being this day, this is the first, it's not coincidence, we worship together the first day of the week. That we're not ending our week in worship and setting that aside, but we're starting it because Jesus came to life on a Sunday morning. Like that is why we worship together and set Sundays apart as a day that we treat differently. As a day that we engage together and read the word together and sing together and give our offerings together. We do that on Sunday. We call it the Lord's Day. Because it's the day that he came back to life. And it's the day we mark as different in our lives. I love the Puritans get a bad rap. I remember reading about them in history class when I was a kid. And people would use puritanical like it was some negative uh, adjective. But the Puritans in our country and even over uh, in Europe uh, a few centuries ago, they would call Sunday, they would call the Lord's Day, the market day of the soul. I love that. 
that they called Sunday the market day of the soul. And they said, every other day of the week, we're going to work hard. We're going to sell our stuff. We're going to grow our things, take care of our stuff, and, and sell it and trade as we need to. But on the first day of the week, the day Jesus rose from the grave as the start of this new creation, that is our market day of our soul. And we're going to set it apart as different. And you can set your Sunday apart however differently you want. Uh, at minimum, I think we ought to gather together to worship. But it is to be a market day of our soul where we, where we show the world that we live differently, that, that even in the rhythm of our life, we set aside a day to honor the Lord and have our soul be fed, to have, have our body and our mind and our heart restored with rest. And we have persistent pulls every day of the week, but certainly on Sundays too, don't we, to not do that. We have, for most of us, work weeks that are looming the very next morning that sometimes we want to get a head start on it or house, housework that, that we see. And these are not bad things to do. Don't hear me setting law upon you. But we have these distractions that are tempting to us to not set aside Sunday any differently. We have, I will admit to this, NFL games that start two weeks from today, right? I'm serious about that. Like, we, we, we set aside our Sundays for that at times and don't even give a thought to how it's different to worship God and how it's a market day for my soul, like, to learn and to worship and to grow. We have rec league. We have all sorts of things that we are tempted to do to not make Sunday be any different and to just live as the world lives. In the next couple of Sundays, we're going to preach sermons about work and about rest. And so there's much more we'll have to say about this subject the next few weeks that I hope will be for our good as God's people. But we can face the same temptation to compromise just like they do, that we don't set apart our week any differently than the world. And God's people should be distinct and different when it comes to how we organize our weeks. And the last area that Nehemiah sees, at least that he records for us, that, that he sees as an area of compromise, we're going to see in verses 23 down through the end of the book. And this is going to be the area of marriage and how they intermarried with people of other ethnicities. But the primary issue is marrying people of other religions who had, had different gods that they served, different gods that they were seeking to worship. And Nehemiah sees them doing this. And again, this was something they made specific commitments about just back in chapter 10. That he had led them to say, guys, we cannot keep doing this. Like of, of marrying people of foreign ethnicities who worship other gods, who are going to pull us away to worship other gods. But that's exactly what they're returning to. So we'll see what he sees, see what he did, and then see what it has to do with us. He records in verse 23 and following. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and he gets very strong here. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. That maybe even was from their beards, they think, as a sign of judgment. And he says, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Then he refers to another historical example. This is strong. He says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. And nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. 
Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. So the last thing and the thing that angers Nehemiah the most is what he sees when it comes to marriage. What he observes is that there are, are Jewish men who have been marrying women of different ethnicities from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And again, I want to emphasize this has nothing to do with their ethnicity in and of itself or their skin color or anything like that. It is that they are marrying women who have no regard for Yahweh, who have no regard or desire to follow after him. And they're, they're becoming one with them. They're, they're uniting their life with them something that God had forbidden them to do and that they had committed to not do. And Nehemiah sees that they're reverting to this again, just half a generation later. And what seems like it breaks his heart even more is what the effect that has on the kids, right? Verse 24, he says that some of the children, half of the children that are offspring from these marriages don't even speak the language of Judah. And that's not some, like, racist thing. Like, some people get mad. they like, people just need to learn English in our country. Stuff. That's not it. The language of Judah was the language that God had given his word in, right? That, that was how they knew who God was and how they could hear the stories of what he had done for his people and how he wanted them to live. And if they did not know that language, they couldn't know what God had done. And, and Nehemiah sees these children who know nothing it seems of the language of god the works of god the history of god the commands of god and it breaks his heart and it angers him to see that they are doing this and having these effects that are going to ripple out into generations to come and he sees even by the end of this down in verses 28 and 29 that that eliashib who we saw that had let tobiah live in the temple that that same man his grandson has become the son-in-law, so he's married in, to this family of Sanballat the Horonite. Which again, if you have missed the story up till now, I'm sorry, but Sanballat was one of the other leaders of the enemies of God. Like he was one of the other guys who was taunting them and threatening them and trying to intimidate them. And the high priest's grandson married his daughter, it seems. Like, what are they doing? Like, they are, they're binding themselves. They're marrying themselves, interlocking their souls and lives with people who do not have a regard for God or for his people. And they are freely marrying into them, and he chases that guy away from him in verse 28. And you see, he appeals to the example of Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man who had ever lived up to this point in time, maybe second only to Jesus ever. And God had, had blessed him richly. And he was the one who had built the temple. And that the, God had come down into the temple during his reign. He's a wonderful king in many ways. But his downfall was his marriages, plural, which was a problem in of itself. But to many foreign women who did not have a love for the Lord. And he compromised and at least for a season abandoned his commitment to follow after the Lord. And, and Nehemiah is saying, if he did that, who are we to think we're stronger than that? 
Like, why do we keep doing this? We may be tempted again to think this has nothing to do with us, and there's far more I could say on this, but I want to at least say a few brief thoughts about uh, when it comes to marriage in our context, especially as believers, as followers of Jesus. I have known so many people, young and even older people too, who think that they, can, that they have freedom in Christ to date or to marry whoever they want to. That as long as they're, they feel enough love for them and a strong enough affection for them, that they think that it is okay to date, to get engaged, to even potentially marry those who are outside of the faith, those who have no regard for Jesus, or who may just tolerate him and not be hostile to them. And we think that that is okay, that our love is unique, that, our, that my love is strong enough to overcome that. And I want to lovingly challenge you to reevaluate that assumption. And to listen to the word of God where he tells us to not be, he says, unequally yoked with those who are not followers of Christ. Like when you enter into marriage, there, whether you realize it or not, there is a mingling of souls, to borrow a title of a book that I'm reading right now. There's a bondedness that comes with marriage that it is unwise. It is disobedient even to God in many ways, I would say, to bind your soul and heart to someone you know doesn't love him. And it's going to have an effect on you whether you realize it or not. And I totally realize you may be used by God to convert that man or woman. I've seen that happen. God can redeem. Um, but often what happens is that that other spouse's lack of love for the Lord wears off, rubs off on you. And it's hard to keep worshiping with God's people and prioritizing reading the word and giving of gifts and using of time to be with God's people when your spouse wants nothing to do with that. And if God blesses you with children, if God shows favor to you, your children are going to have one of their parents who doesn't love the Lord. It may tolerate you telling them to, but it's going to set by their example and by their words an example in the opposite direction. And it will be hard to teach them the language of God's people. To, to Not impossible, but hard to teach them the language of God's people and the good news Christ. And so I would lovingly caution you if you are thinking about and engaging uh, with a person of the opposite sex and heading towards marriage that's not a believer to listen to the advice and counsel from the word of God. Listen to the examples of others who've gone before you and strongly reconsider and step out of that relationship and reprioritize things. I know that is difficult. It's much more like I say if you're already in a marriage like that, but that would be for another day. And, and God has grace for us in that. God shows kindness and compassion to us in that situation. We'd always be glad to talk uh, with you about those things. And so in all of this, as, as Nehemiah sees their compromise, is, and as we may be tempted to compromise ourselves, the main way I would sum up this part of this story and as we end Nehemiah would be this, is to never stop striving for holiness. Never stop striving for holiness. If you just read up through chapter 12, you would have thought, man, all things are headed in a good direction. Like they're obedient, they're trusting, they're repentant, they're united, they're self-sacrificing. And you would have thought, man, they're locked and loaded, ready to roll for years and generations ahead. But in just a matter of years, as a whole nation, they had compromised. We ought to be careful as individuals and as a church, as groups of Christians, to not settle for our current faith and assume that that's just going to fuel future faith and fuel future obedience. But day by day, week by week, we ought to be drawing near to God and fighting for holiness in our life, not resting upon obedience from the past or assuming that we're immune from falling. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, 
Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And we would be wise to remember that if Solomon fell, if Judas betrayed Christ, if we've seen examples within our own church, as hard as that is to remember and think about, if there's been people around you that you've seen walk away from the Lord to abandon him, what makes you think that you are immune from that possibility? Like we are to draw near to him and fight for holiness, fight for obedience in our lives. And we are to fight to help others in their fight for holiness, right? Nehemiah, I've thought about this a lot this week. Nehemiah is an older man. As he came back to Jerusalem and saw all this, he could have done what, and I will be an old man, Lord willing, someday, so I say this carefully, but he does what a stereotypical old man, he could have done what a stereotypical old man would do and just be like, kids these days. They're like, can you believe what they've done with Jerusalem and just totally abandon them and not help them, not engage. And he's heartbroken and he's angry, but he stoops down to help them. He, he uses his energy, he uses the time that he has left, however much is left, to try to help them return to holiness and try to help them be restored. And I would encourage you, if you're in an older generation, to help those of us who are younger. If you see ways that you think there's compromise or disobedience, I mean, first see that hopefully in yourself in small ways too and think how you can be growing in holiness. But reach out to people and help them. Don't just, don't just, and I love our church. We're not bad at this. But if that temptation is in your heart, don't give in to it. Stoop down to help the people that are coming behind you even if you feel like they are, are not listening. Be patient with them. In a moment, we're going to sing a song together. But I wanted to point out, this is, the book of Nehemiah records the last historical events that we know of before the New Testament. This is like at the very end when, right, because it's after Jerusalem got torn down and then years later uh, God raises up Nehemiah and Ezra and some others to help rebuild it. And then it, the, the historical events really end right here in the Old Testament um, before 400 years later Jesus is going to break on the scene. And this is a pretty bleak ending to the Old Testament, isn't it? Like as the curtains are going down on this act of history, this is a pretty bleak picture. And we, we could be tempted to think there's no happily ever after coming. There's, there's not. Uh, if you just read the story, because those next couple hundred years are just dark and quiet and disobedient in many ways. But 400 years after this, Jesus comes onto the scene. He comes from, he, there's a lot of overlap with him and Nehemiah. In a sense, he comes from that land far, far away where he'd been with the king of heaven. And he, he knows the devastation of his people and he enters into our world at great cost to himself. And he leads a reform of sorts. He, he changes people. He teaches people. He challenges people. He overcomes God's enemies in ways Nehemiah couldn't hold a candle to. And when he went to the cross, he died not just to, to help people overcome sin like Nehemiah was trying to do, but to take our sins upon himself. And he suffered and died upon the cross so that we might be forgiven of our sins and have them removed from us and the debt that we owe could be paid. And he didn't just end with a, a rebuilt wall and, and structures. What The story ended with Jesus in his earthly state was a resurrected body that would never crumble again. This wall that Nehemiah helped rebuild crumbled again. But the resurrected body of Jesus that came to life that Sunday morning is alive and well in heaven right now and will be until he returns. And Nehemiah left for a while, didn't he? He set things up and he, he established leaders and processes and whatnot, and then he left. 
and stuff kind of went to pot. It unraveled, and he comes back, what we just read, and desperately trying to put it together and fix it and, like, restore stuff, and he can't. Like, if we have the story that goes on after this, we're going to see they fail again and again and again, and Nehemiah is weak to do what he would like to do. And Jesus has left now. He established leaders. He gave the apostles. He gave, it's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us the tools that we need. But sometimes in our world, even now that we live in, we're not living in that happily ever after. We compromise. Like we sin. We disobey. The world has suffering and death within it that comes near to us and ultimately will come to us. But there is a day when Jesus will return from that land far, far away. And when he comes back, it's not going to be like Nehemiah just desperately trying to fix stuff and powerless to do it. When he comes back, he is going to set up what the end of the Bible calls the new Jerusalem. Like where they don't need to shut the gates. And there's not enemies to tempt us. There's not sin within us that we're tempted to follow after. There's no lack. There's no pain. There's no death. God will dwell with us. And we have that secure hope to look forward to when our king, our ruler, returns. And that ought to motivate us, that future work that he's going to do ought to motivate us right now to fight for holiness. To say, I am going to live for him because of what he's already done for me on the cross and what he will do for me when he returns. And there's a reason our hearts long as kids for that story of happily ever after, right? And we don't get to experience it in this life. But when he returns, if we are trusting in him, we will. There will be this happily ever after that our hearts have been longing for forever, but that we've yet to experience. If you're a, a person today who maybe feels like, I don't know that God would give that to me. Like, I don't have Nehemiah praise, like, remember my good works. Remember the things that I've done. Like, reward me for these good things. You may look at your life and say, I'm more of these people that are compromising and compromising and compromising. I don't have anything to appeal to God on uh, for him to show favor to me or let me be part of that. And I would just point you to how Nehemiah ends. Did you see that, how he ends? He doesn't say, remember me because of the good I've done. He just says, remember me. And like, even if you have no good deeds, and none of us do, no good deeds to bring to the table to say, God, remember me. Let me be part of the new Jerusalem. Like, help me uh, be forgiven. If you have nothing to bring to him that is good, you are in the right place. Because he doesn't require that. All he requires of you to be remembered by him is that you would turn from your sin confess it to him and say, I'm putting my trust in Christ, the one who died for me and was raised for me. And if you will do that, even today, even this moment, he will receive you and he will remember you when the return of Christ comes and you will get to be part of that happily ever after. I'm going to